Mark chapter 2 tonight, verse number 1, the Bible says, And again he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. Well, I'd love to have that reputation as a church. Tell you what, Jesus is in that house. I'd like to have that reputation. Verse number 2, And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. Now make no mistake about it, Jesus came to become the Savior of the world. But while he was here, he preached. He preached righteousness. He preached repentance. He did not preach some watered-down gospel. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection. Continuing to read there in verse number uh, uh, 3, I guess we are. The Bible says, And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press... They uncovered the roof where he was. See, Jesus not only is in the house, the roof is on fire. I just made that up. That wasn't even good. I'm sorry. I apologize. That's a rocky way to start this sermon out. And we'll, we'll get better, I hope. I prayed that it was good. I don't know, though. It's starting out pretty rough. They uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith. He said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. I tell you, reasoning is the enemy of just saying yes. When God puts something on your heart, well, I've got responsibility. Well, I've got other obligations. Well, I've just got too much on my plate right now. Reasoning is the enemy of just saying yes. And they began to reason in their hearts, verse number 7, Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love you tonight. We thank you so much for the testimonies of the missionaries that have presented their works. Lord, it's so evident their burden for their respective fields. Lord, we can see the passion oozing off of every word that they speak about how it's their people and how they have seen souls saved or they want to see souls saved and the growth that you've allowed them to see. Oh, Father, what a heart for ministry and what a heart for missions. Now tonight, God, I pray that you'd be with me. I pray that you would allow me to present a heart of a missionary. And Lord, I pray that we would be willing to open up our heart that we may have the heart of a missionary. Father, I pray that everything said and done tonight would glorify you. Lord, I'm not up here with any vendetta or to try making anyone angry. Lord, I just simply want to present Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. 
And Lord, I want to show the burden that has been placed upon us to preach the cross of Jesus. Lord, please bless the sermon and the service tonight. I ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As you can probably have assumed by now, I want to speak to you tonight about the heart of a missionary. The heart of a missionary. Does it not seem like folly? Does it not seem a little strange or out of the ordinary for somebody to decide one day to leave the comforts of America? And we spoke this morning, preachers spoke this morning about it doesn't matter who's in governmental power or who's in control of the presidential office. We are a blessed people and a blessed nation. But does it not seem like folly, somewhat of a, a strange thing to do to take your, your, your family and transplant them in some foreign country and in a lot of these situations take them to a country that is far less affluent than the one that they are already in? Does it not seem a little strange why somebody would just root up their family from everything they've ever known, everything that they're comfortable with, and just say, God has sent me somewhere else, so regardless of comfort, we will go there. What is it that drives a person to do that? It's the heart of a missionary. You see, Paul even spoke about it in Romans chapter 10, verse number 1. He said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Oh, his desire was not that he would become a famous preacher. His desire was not that people would know him or recognize him. His only goal and ambition and desire in life was to see people come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. That's why you uproot your family. That's why you go to Wells. That's why you go to Korea or to the Philippines. That's why you go is because something in your heart burns much greater than comfort, burns much deeper than just uh, pleasures here in America. Something bigger than you calls you. Something greater than you calls you. It's the heart of a missionary. I want the heart of a missionary, don't you? There would be a thing for us to have. So tonight I want to speak to you about three truths about the heart of a missionary. First of all, I want to show you the heart of a missionary is movable. Real quick, am I on? Uh, Can y'all hear me all right? It seems like I'm much less... Oh, if you can't hear me now, you'll hear me in a little bit. I promise you, I'm I'm into this sermon. I'm ready to preach this thing. So we'll, we'll get there, even if you're not interested now. We'll get there, even if you're not interested at all in the sermon. You'll probably see me get a little red at one point in the sermon. So, amen, just laugh at me and say amen. That'll be all right with me. First of all, the heart of a missionary is movable. One of the gravest concerns that we should have as the church is the utter apathy that we have towards a lost and dying world. Oh, we speak often about homosexuality. We speak often of all the abominable sins that everybody knows about. But you know what we don't speak about? Apathy. Complacency. Just becoming comfortable with everything that's going on around us. And my friend, I tell you, probably the thing that breaks God's heart is not that we sin. He expects that. But the thing that he is so probably uh, utterly uh, uh, broken over is the fact that Christians cannot get motivated enough to share the message of his son. Complacency. The heart of a missionary is movable. 
I hope ours is too. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, God save us from living in comfort while sinners are sinking into hell. Oh, we enjoy a lot of comforts, don't we? We enjoy some of the most extreme niceties. The other day I was sitting there watching a Red Lobster commercial. I like Red Lobster. I think they have good food. I, I love their biscuits. Even if they serve me nothing after that, those biscuits are worth going in there. They'll make you want to slap your mama. Not my mama, of course. She's too sweet of a godly lady. But they will make you want to slap your mama. They're so good. I was watching a commercial the other day, and I, I saw that right there on the television. It said, oh, lobster month. And they've got 19,000 different ways to eat a lobster, and there's not one of them that's wrong. I'll just say that. They take that lobster... And then I was okay with the lobster meal. It was only when they began to shower and bathe it in shrimp and other lobster components that I was like, does that seem a little excessive to anyone else? Not only are we eating lobster here in America, we're eating lobster on top of lobster. Like, hey, we've got plenty of lobster to eat here in America. Man, don't we enjoy the niceties, the the wonders of living in America, but sometimes it has just allowed us to get a little too complacent with the thing that is really the most important. It can be said like this, let's make sure we keep the main thing the very main thing. We get sidetracked, our focus gets off point. We are movable when we are able to see the pain. Look at verse number 3. The Bible says, and they come unto him bringing one sick of the palsy. Now you can read commentary after commentary, and each commentator has a different opinion on what was exactly wrong with this man. Uh, It's very obvious that he was a cripple. He could not get himself around. He did not have the ability to walk around. I don't know what caused it. There's a good chance it was from his mother's womb. It does not tell us that. There's a good chance it happened in a work accident. You just don't know. But the fact of the matter is, the man was limited. He did not have the ability to go work for himself. My friends, he didn't even have the ability to to get himself from point A to point B by himself. And his friends here do something that is very admirable. They begin to care about this man. You know why? Because they saw him suffering. The other day I went to visit one of my friends in the hospital and they had had a premature birth. And their baby was very, very small. I think they had had it at 28 weeks or something just very, very young. They asked me, Brother Andrew, do you want to go see the baby in the the, uh, intensive care for the prenatal babies? And I said, no. I don't. I said, "I, I don't want to offend you. I don't want to upset you. But I don't want to see something that will upset me, that will hurt me, that will make me just wish something else were the case. Because you know what? If I had walked into that intensive care unit, and I did when Mandy and Craig had been, I walked into that intensive care unit and I saw little babies that were no bigger than the size of a Coke bottle. Wrapped up and they look like they can't breathe. They've got tubes going in everywhere. They they look like there's no way they're going to make it. And it is one of the most depressing things I've ever seen in my life, seeing those little babies just struggling for their next breath of air. You know, I don't want to see that. But what hurts me the most is the fact that we no longer view sinners in that same manner. We have become so comfortable seeing sin. And not only seeing sin, 
But we get comfortable seeing the good old boy. But I've got news for you. The worst sinner in this world and the good old boy without Christ are going to the exact same place. And it breaks my heart, and I am certain, most certain, that, uh, that it breaks God's heart that we could view people, and in our daily conversation, and in our daily duties, we look at them and we wonder, oh, I wonder if they play this, I wonder if they go this, I wonder if they're a Mavericks fan, I wonder if they're going to a Rangers game. And never does it cross our mind whether or not they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and personal Savior. It doesn't even bother us anymore. One of the beautiful things about this passage is that these men saw the need of the man who was hurting. But we've turned a blind eye to the need. We've turned a blind eye to the fact that there are truly people in this world who do not know Christ as their personal Savior. And they have not chosen to reject Him. They just don't know the true gospel. And if they were to know that uh, uh, over 2,000 years ago, a man who was not only man but was God in a man's flesh came down from from heaven, from a throne room. He comes down and wraps himself in flesh for the sins of the world. And he walks 33 and a half years on this earth. And every day people accused him. Every day people reviled him. Every day people questioned him as about what his motives were. He would do a miracle, people would question him. He would do something great, people would question him. He would teach them something, people would question him. And yet he died on the cross of Calvary for the sins of the world. And yet there are people that don't know that story. Well, they're not rejecting him. They just don't know that truth. And if they were to know that truth, man, I tell you, we'd see aisles full. We'll see this this altar full of people confessing their sins and their failures before an almighty God. And we would see the glory come down on the lives of sinners. But my friend, we'll never see it unless we see the hurting first. We'll never realize the beauty of salvation until we see the ugliness of sin's captivity. What a shame it is when we can't see the pain. I want you to notice, secondly, when we can't see the permanency. Verse number 3, the Bible says, They come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. See, I think these men realized that if they did not act... And if Jesus did not have the answer, no one would. And this man would not only live a very miserable life, but we know what it would mean in eternity. When we choose not to spread the gospel, sure, we're making it harder for families to get along. We're making it harder for men to walk through this world because I'll be honest with you, I don't know what someone does without God walking through this world. Because, man, I make a lot of mistakes, I do a lot of really dumb things, and it's only God that gets me through day to day. And sure, if we don't spread the message of Jesus Christ, it's going to be hard for them to walk through this old sinful, terrible world. But you know what? That's not the worst part. You want to know who the best soul winner is in the entire world? The person who just most recently got to hell. Luke chapter 16 tells the story of a man, a rich man, goes to Abraham's bosom. Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. The other man finds himself in hell. He looks up, the Bible says, being in torments. And he looks over at Lazarus. And you know what the first thing he realized was? He asked this question. I want you to look at some deep theology. He does not ask for to be relieved from the uh, eternality of his punishment. 
He doesn't say, oh, get me out of here, Father Abraham. You know why? Because even when he was burning in hell, he realized he deserved to be there. You know what he asked for? Just temporary relief. He said, would you please send Lazarus just to dip the, the, the tip of his finger in some water and just drip it on my tongue? And Father Abraham says, oh, there's no way we could do that, for between us is a great gold fix, so that if I wanted to come over there, I could not, and if you want to come over here, you could not. The Bible goes on to say that his very next words were this, then Father Abraham, please send him to my family. Send him to everyone. Tell them how terrible this place is. Tell them the the, the pain. Tell them the torment. Tell them there is no relief in sight. Tell them that this is once done, always done. Tell them there's no chance of escape. Tell them. And Father Abraham says, I'm sorry. Though one were to rise from the dead, they would not believe if they cannot believe Moses and the prophets. You see, my friend, you may think that your denial to obey God's call on your life to be a missionary here on a local field, you may think that it's only making it harder on them here and now, but I promise you, here and now has got nothing on the sweet by and by. But for some, it's not going to be sweet at all. For some, it's going to be painful. For some, it's going to be terrible. You know why? Because they're going to be burning in a Christless eternity because we were too cowardly to tell. We don't have a missionary's heart when we cannot be moved with people's need for salvation. When it is not enough encouragement for us to actually charge hell with a water pistol, I even tell you, for us to charge someone's front door and say, my friend, I'm from the Joshua Baptist Church, and I'm concerned about whether you would die and go to hell or go to heaven. My friend, do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? But until we get to that point, we'll never have a missionary's heart because we're not movable. I'm concerned we don't have a missionary's heart. Secondly, a missionary's heart is not only movable, it is motivated. It is motivated. I want you to notice in this uh, passage here, in this Bible passage, these men bring their friend to Jesus. Oh, they do everything they can to get to Jesus. I want you to notice that the Bible teaches us a beautiful principle. This is very true even in real life. Our eye affects our heart, which affects our feet. Until you've been affected, until something has caught your eye and called you to a a greater cause, oh, you'll continue to sit where you are. You'll continue to sit complacent right exactly where you are. But until your eye affects your heart, which in turn affects your feet, you'll never move. The heart of a missionary is motivated. These men were motivated to get to Jesus. And I believe it was because they saw his condition. The Bible teaches us of a a beautiful parable. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus talks about a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan who happen upon a man who's been injured and and, and been beaten. He's half dead. The Bible literally says the term half dead. The Bible says that the priest walked by and, I quote, saw him. Oh, it wasn't that he looked over top of him. He didn't look by him. The Bible says he saw him but it didn't affect his heart. The Bible goes on to say that the Levite came, and let me quote, came and looked on him. In other words, the Levite was walking down the road, and not only did he see him from a distance like I imagine the priest did, 
He literally went over to him, came and looked on him, but it did not affect his heart. You see, the only difference between the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan is the Bible says that when the Samaritan saw the man, he saw him and had compassion. It moved him to a decision. It moved him to take him to the inn. It moved him to get him medical help. It moved him to help the man in ways that the priest and the Levite, oh, sure, they had religion, but they had no concern. They had no compassion. What a shame it is when Christians cannot be motivated to act by the fact that people need the Lord. I read a very unique and quite odd story today. It's about a man by the name of Andrew Smelly Smolian. That's a pretty strange name. Smelly was his nickname, but his name was Andrew Smolian. Now, this is 1979. This is in the country of London. London is a country, right? Please, nope. City. I'll come visit you in Wales, my friend. In the great state of Wales. What do you have over there? Precincts? I don't know. I, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know. Okay, I'm not great at geography. I'm not a geographer, all right? Back off. I'm a preacher. I don't know anything about life. Andrew Smolian became famous as a, a debt collector. And he perfected a special technique that nobody was daring enough, and yet nobody was willing enough to try. Andrew Smolian decided to become the stinkiest he could possibly become. In other words, he had a phrase that he liked to tell the people he was going to collect the debt from. It was, throw up or pay up. I kid you not, the man wore a 22-year-old coat from his father. And at the very beginning of him actually collecting debts, this is very early on while he was doing it, he would take a fish and he would fillet it in half and hang one fish on this coat pocket and the other fish on this coat pocket and he would enter businesses and ask them for their money. He actually said that the bulk of his business came from the receptionist approaching their boss and saying, if you don't pay up, you're going to have to hire a new secretary. People couldn't st- smell, stand the smell of the odor. In fact... Mr. Smolian continued to refine the process, and he even hired a chemist to create the most odorous, most terrible smell that he could create. He used old vegetables, liver, kidneys, and cat food, and combined them to make the smelliest concoction he could. This was all fine and good. In fact, he became quite famous for this process. Very, very good. I think it said he collected over 70,000 pounds. Now, is that a lot? Is it, that's a lot of weight, isn't it? Get it. Get it. All right. The Bible, no, the Bible don't say it. This is a story. I always say that. I'm sorry. 70,000 pounds he collected. He's got this process refined. In fact, one day, however, it got him in trouble. The police from... Let me see if I can get this. Scotland Yard? Am I even in the right country? No, I'm not. I'm just confused. I don't know what's going on. But the 
the story told that the police came and got him and they took him to court and he is the very first case ever of, uh, let me see, I want to get this right. He was a defendant of a charge of criminal aroma. This is not a joke, I promise you. When asked why, how he could stand his own stench, he replied like this with a smile on his face. I have blocked sinuses. I can't smell a thing. <laughs> a lot of money collected because the guy couldn't smell his own stink. Here's the problem. Because we've closed our nose. This world smells filthy. They reek of sin. They reek of wickedness, and it's not their own fault. They are sinners from their mother's womb, Psalm chapter 51 teaches us. He was shapen in iniquity. They don't have a choice. When they don't know Christ, they have no reason to be good. They stink. And we walk around with our nose plugged, just ignoring the stench. When are we going to start smelling how bad they need Christ? When are we going to realize that we are Christians and we are missionaries and we are the only ones that are ever going to tell them how to wash up and how to get right before a holy God? We are the only ones. A missionary's heart is motivated to act. Secondly, it is motivated to abandonment. Notice this in verse 4. They come to somewhat of a roadblock, the Bible says, and when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. Oh, verse 4, they finally hit a roadblock. They hit a speed bump. This is where it becomes so easy. And I'll tell you this, Satan will always give you an excuse if you want one. It becomes so easy for them in verse 4 to never have a verse 5. Verse 4 says they come and they can't get to Jesus because the crowd is too great. They're pouring out of the door. They can't get through the windows. There's no room in the door. The, Jesus draws a crowd. He's preaching the gospel to him. An amazing day. But the problem is they cannot get to Christ. And so what they decide to do, instead of packing up and going home and saying, well, Jesus probably wouldn't have time anyway. Jesus probably couldn't even do it if we tried. Instead of doing that, you know what they did? They found another way to get this man to Jesus. They go up through the roof, and like I said earlier, raise the roof. They took the roof off the, uh, off the building. They broke it up. They lowered the man through the housetop. They were going to do whatever it took to get this man to Christ. Oh, that's good. What a, what a good thing that they were doing. They were willing to take time out of their own schedule. They were willing to, to put up with whatever. They were willing to go out of their way to get this man to Jesus. What are you willing to get out of your way or to give up to get someone to Christ? Oh, a missionary's heart is a heart of abandonment. I, I live in Texas and Jesus calls me to, to go mission on some foreign field. I abandon everything that I've ever known to go to that field to give the people the gospel. Oh, abandonment. 
I admire these missionaries more than you can even imagine. I don't admire them because they're traveling around this country trying to raise money to go live on some foreign field. No, I admire them because they have faith enough to look at God and say, God, whatever your call is on my life, I am willing to go there. And that, my friend, is why I don't even, I don't only want, I've got to have the heart of a missionary. Oh, because I can never be the pastor that you deserve if I don't have a heart that says, dear God, do whatever you want to with me. Dear God, use me. Dear God, spend me and I will be spent for the cause of the gospel. Oh, Lord, I want a heart of abandonment. But we sit comfortable in our recliner kick back watching channel 412, watching channel 140, watching whatever channel you choose, probably Jerry Springer, knowing our church. And you sit back comfortable. No heart of abandonment, a heart of contentment, heart of complacency maybe, apathy for sure, just turn a blind eye and it never affects our heart. Remember, our eye affects our heart, which affects our feet. When you view people without Christ, when you pass by a church who is giving a false gospel, when Jehovah's Witness knock on your door and you realize, man, it's not the fact that they're not committed, it's just the fact that they're confused. When you see that, does it break your heart? Does it tear you in pieces? Does it make you realize that there are people who are, are zealous People who are religious, they just don't know the Savior. Does that break your heart? Oh, it ought to. And because of that, we ought to be able to say, Dear God, whatever you have for my life, I will do it. A heart of abandonment, a missionary's heart is motivated. I want you to look with me at the motivated uh, heart. A missionary's heart is motivated because of their attitude. Look in verse 5. The Bible says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now I want you to notice two things about this verse. First of all, it was their faith and not the work that saved him. Everybody listen. Going soul winning does nothing. Me going out to spread the gospel in my own power will return void every single time. I don't want you to come out Saturday if you don't want to. But if you knew the Savior, and you know what He did in your heart, and you absolutely know what this world is going to be like, and you know where they're headed if they don't meet the same Savior that you know? My friend, it ought not be a work when you go soul winning. It ought to be you going in faith. It ought to be you sharing the gospel at work because in faith you trust God to give you results. The Bible says, oh, uh, Apollos planted and I watered, but God gave the increase. It is not our works, not of works of righteousness that we have done, but by His grace He saved us. Oh, and you start in grace and you run the course in grace. My friend, we have to have faith in an almighty God that if He tells us to go, we'll see results. It was not their faith, it was not their works that saved this man. 
it was their faith. But I want you to notice, secondly, it was their faith that brought him. It was not their faith that bought him. Look at verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now let's think about this. Let's not bring any type of doctrinal or theological error into our church. Could you get the idea that it was as a result of these four men's faith Jesus had compassion on this man? As you read the passage in context, it could seem that way. But when we cross-reference this passage with many other passages in the Bible, is it Brother Curtis's responsibility to trust Christ or have faith in Christ for me? Now, Brother Curtis may be a faithful servant of God and bring people to Christ, but it is ultimately Christ the one that does the saving. I remember the first convert that I ever got to lead to the Lord. I came to my mom and I said, Mom, I saved someone today. She said, you didn't save them, son. You brought them to salvation. You brought them to Jesus. Jesus is not looking for faith that goes out and just says, God, bring us back results. Jesus is looking for faith that says, God, if you've told me to go, I'll have enough faith to go. I'll have faith that if I bring this man, and boy, this man needs Jesus, amen? You Aggie. But if I have enough faith to go, Jesus will buy the people that I bring. Jesus will do amazing things in the lives of people if I will just be obedient. A lot of times, we do not have the attitude of a missionary. I love when these missionaries come and present. Man, I love hearing them. Hold on, Miss Amy back there. I'm so excited. She's like, April, what is it, Miss Amy? 13th. April 13th can't get her fast enough. And I don't know why. She's got to go spend a lot of time with Brian and Jamie. And they're listening tonight, so they I'm not saying that behind their back. I tell you, she's sitting here with so much passion and so much joy. I'm leaving everything I've ever known. I'm leaving America. I'm leaving the place where my family is. I'm leaving comfort to go tell about Jesus. You know why? Because she's got a missionary's attitude. She's got a heart that says, if I go in faith, God will do works and wonders through me. Oh, a missionary's heart is motivated. I want you to look thirdly. The heart of a missionary matters. It matters. Look at verse number 12. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all. Now I will say this, you ought to go and spread the gospel because you know Jesus. And I don't need to expand on that. I, I don't need to paint this beautiful word picture of why Jesus is worthy to tell that story. I love to tell the story. And I don't need to elaborate. We ought to want to tell because of Jesus. But as I look at us and I evaluate my own heart, I wonder, if I go, who's it going to matter to? I'll tell you what, it'll matter to the person. 
Guess what happens to this man in our story if his friends never take him? He continues in the same condition he's always been in. He never meets Christ. And at the very moment he dies, he'll think that his life on earth was a blessing. He'll wish to be a crippled beggar on this earth. Because hell's fires will so engulf him. They will so torment him that he will wish for what he will have considered the pains of earth. Who's it matter to? The people. The person. One of the most beautiful things is being able to lead someone through the plan of salvation and look at their face right after it. It's something like you've never seen. You talk about people getting excited when they win the lottery. I've seen people so much more excited than that. Lottery is so temporary. When someone kneels down at this altar here, at this pew here, and somebody shows them that they're a sinner and that they need Jesus as their personal Savior, and it's only by His grace that He has saved them. When someone knows that and they've shown that for the very first time, you know what? They begin to weep and they begin to moan and they, they begin to say, Lord, I'm... I'm so sorry for everything I've done. Jesus, please save me. And at that moment, when you first meet eyes with that person, there's this time, this transition time of bitter emotion and exceeding joy colliding. It's, I'm so undone before God, but by His grace, He has saved me. And it is such a magical moment. It is a wonderful time. Who does it matter to for you to go? For you to have the heart of a missionary? Who does it matter to? Who does it matter to? It matters to the person. Because without you going, without you obeying God's call on your life, that person never meets Christ. I tell you, you are the only Bible some people will ever read. Some people will never step foot in church, no matter if it's an Easter drama, no matter if it's a festival of tables. Definitely not that one, because they'd have to pay money to get to that one. It does not matter what we do as a church. Some people will never step through the threshold of that doors. But you see them every day at work. You live right next to them. And it'll matter to them if you obey God's call on your life. It mattered to the cripple man in Acts chapter 3, did it not? seated there by the beautiful gate. They come through the gate. He says, uh, uh, you got something, something for me, boys? Well, they say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. The Bible said he leaping up stood, and he leaped and praised God as he entered the temple. Could you imagine if somebody walked through those doors back there leaping? Brother, Brother Eubanks every once in a while gets a little leap in his step, don't he? I love it when you're here, Brother Eubanks. You get a little leapy. I like it. We need a little spring in this church. We'll call you Air Jordan from now on, Brother Eubanks. Amen. Amen. That's good. Get you a jersey, number 23. I like it. Man, I tell you, I'm just so concerned about our church that we cannot see the very need and how it will matter to the person. The demon-possessed man, society could not help this man. Satan didn't want this man, but the Savior took him. 
And seated at the feet of Jesus, the, the town has put him in chains and fetters. They didn't know what to do with him. Seated at the feet of Jesus, Luke chapter 8, the Bible says, seated and clothed and in his right mind. And he says, Lord, I'll follow you. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do anything you want me to do. Lord, you just tell me where. I'll follow you. You know what Jesus says? How about you start at home? Go tell everybody who knew you before, and you start to share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It mattered to Zacchaeus when he was up that sycamore tree. Jesus says, hey, Zacchaeus, you slide on down here, buddy. We're going to eat supper at your house tonight. Zacchaeus goes and he meets Jesus. The Bible literally says these words, and he received him. Well, you can take that he received him into his house, but that's not what I read. He received him into his heart, the more important place. And Zacchaeus goes, and he was so excited to meet Jesus. He was so glad to meet Jesus. He looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, half of everything I own I'll give to the poor. Lord, because I'm so excited about what you've done for me. Jesus, you've been so good to me. Jesus, I know you. And these, these, these worldly treasures don't mean a thing. Jesus, I'm so glad I'll do whatever you want me to do. You know, you know who's going to ma- matter the most to if you get the heart of a missionary? You know it's going to impact the most? Oh, it'll be great for you. Oh, you'll go to new heights as a Christian. You'll see God in your life like you've never seen him before. You'll have vigor. You'll have zeal. You'll have so much energy you won't even know what to do with. But you know who it'll matter the most to? The people. The person that you go tell about Jesus. That's who it'll matter to. I want you to know finally we're done. Notice this. Who does it matter the most to? The press. Look at this. Verse number 12. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. Oh, it'll make a lot of difference to the people outside these walls. You tell them about Jesus for the very first time, and they come to know him. Oh, man, you'll get to experience that. And I tell you, it's just better than anything you've ever done in your life. You know who else it'll matter to? The person right beside you. And the person right beside them. All these people who have known you for years. No, you don't share the gospel message. No, you don't obey God in this missionary-type situation. You know who it'll matter to? It'll matter to everybody in this room that sees you walk a convert down the aisle. (laughs) And Brother Jay sits back there and sees you start caring about some bus kid. Sees you start caring about somebody at work. When, when, When Brother Hodges sees a church member who he's never seen walk someone down the aisle, he sees you walk them down the aisle and you get to stand with them in front of the church. And you get to shake people's hands and say, this is my friend. We, we got to know Jesus. I showed him Jesus. You know it'll matter to everyone around you. And you know what it'll do? It'll encourage them to do more than they've ever done before. And this church, look, one of the things I'm so afraid of is that churches these days are feeding physical needs and not spiritual needs. They're giving them water, but they're not giving them the living water. They're giving them physical bread, but they're not giving them the bread of life. 
And around this community, I don't want to be known as the church that hands out canned vegetables. I don't want to be known as the church that gives away free breakfasts or a place to sleep when someone needs one. You know what I want to be known for? A church that cares about people and their spiritual condition. I want to be known as a church who cares about people that we would go out of our way and take time out of our schedule and even cancel our breaks and our our vacations and and our church going activities that we would not just go to eat ice cream or that we would not just go to eat sandwiches, but that we would go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in to meet Jesus. I don't want to be a church that's complacent. I don't want to be a church that, can, that is content. I want to be a church that's red hot and on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it doesn't matter if we give them food here on this earth. What matters is if they know Jesus. Now, I am beginning to get a lot of stories and illustrations from my daughter. And that is the reason we're having another. I don't know if you've heard on Facebook, but Pastor Chapel decided to spill the beans in front of the entire world. We're having another baby. So we're excited about that. It's a boy, by the way. The doctor has not told us that, but I'm certain of it. And I would appreciate it, your prayers, if it is a girl, that God would change that baby's gender before we find out. Just saying, I know a man who can, amen? Every day my daughter spends every single hour up at the church. My church is a drug baby. She's drugged to church Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. There's not a day my daughter is not up here. During the week, however... It's just kind of like a tag team effort to raise my child. You know, I, I say, hey, Mom, I'm going out for a QT drink. Will you watch, watch Kayla? She goes, oh, yeah, I'll watch her. I'll go out. I'll say, hey, Jamie, I'm going to go play golf or shoot something. Will you watch Kayla? Oh, yeah, I'll watch her. And so basically we all, as a, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. In this case, it takes a staph infection. But, uh. My daughter makes the most absolute horrific messes. I, I don't know how a child who weighs less than 29 pounds, somebody laughed like my daughter's a fatty. I appreciate that. She is, though, to be honest. I don't know how a child that can barely pick up anything with any type of weight can throw things everywhere. Really, I only work at the church from about 9 to 2. The last two hours of my day are spent cleaning up what Caitlin has messed up. You've got to pick it all up. For some reason, we have bird seed in the office. You want to know how to get a baby to make a lot of mess? Take bird seed and give it to them. They throw it out everywhere. You're going to have the ravens up in this church. It's unbelievable. We've got toy here and sock here and shoe here and shirt here. I'm like, Amy, put your shirt back on. It is unbelievable the mess Caitlin makes. Somebody decided to give her, or we have commandeered from the nursery, I'm not sure which one it is, a vacuum. What a brilliant idea. We'll make the rug rat clean up after herself. 
She'll think she's having fun. All the while, she'll just be down there, I'm having fun. I'm having fun. And she'll be cleaning up her own mess. One day I walk in, I'm like, Caitlin, this is amazing. You're cleaning up your own filth. Wish your mama would take notes. You know, and I realized quickly after noticing that she had a vacuum in her hand, it doesn't do anything. It makes the noise of a vacuum. It looks like a vacuum. It sounds like one, looks like one, tastes like one. I don't know how I did that, but it is a vacuum. The only thing is it doesn't work like a vacuum. And so you know what I have to do after the day is done? I have to plug one in and I have to vacuum her mess. You know what we have, church? We have a fake vacuum. We say that we're a mission-minded church, but we're not. We say that the only thing that matters is getting people in these doors and, and getting them to know Jesus, but we're just making noise. We're not cleaning anybody up. We're not helping anybody for the cause of Christ. We're not making an impact in this community for anybody because we're just down here making noise. You know what we need to do? We need to plug in to the one who has the power. How about, instead of being a church who goes out, how about we become a church who cries out? How about instead of coming up on Saturday, and and, and that be the only time we are an evangelistic-minded church, how about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, we fall on our face before God and say, God, use me. God, allow me to be a witness. God, when I go out, may it be like you're speaking through my very vocal cords. God, make me a missionary in my field. God, give me a burning passion to see souls saved. God, make me make a difference in this whole filthy, rotten, stinky, smelly world. God, I pray that you'd give me a missions-minded heart. But until then, we're just making noise. We're not accomplishing anything for God. We're just going through the motions, not actually accomplishing anything.